Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders who want to help their companies execute faster. As always, we're virtual. I'm at home in Buckinghamshire. Vicky's in Deeperstock, Stocksfordshire. Hang on a minute. Vicky, where's Shah? Ah, so um, Shah has followed her heart and she's gone back into the corporate world. And she has absolutely promised us that she's going to come back and talk to us on Get Amplified about how she's taken everything that she's learned with everything that we've done at the Amplified Group and she's now putting it into practice. So we wish her the very best of luck and uh, we miss her dearly, but we need to crack on. We do indeed. And it'll be great to have her back on the, on the, on the podcast in the very, very near future. So what's today's topic, Nikki, and who, who have we got on the show? So today we are very fortunate to have... Paul Weefels on the podcast and Paul is from the Chasm Group and when I was talking to one of my clients that we had you on the on the show Paul he said uh, is that the Chasm Group and then he went to his cupboard and brought out the very famous book and said uh, you mean the guys that created this and I'm like yes that's absolutely it so it's an absolute privilege to have you on the show today So what we're going to talk about is why tech companies are in a time-based competition and why purpose and alignment are critical for success. And I can't think of anyone better qualified to talk about this than Paul. Thanks, Vic. So Paul, do you want to start maybe give us a little bit of a high-level career history, where where you've been, what what you've done? Sure. I originally, when I came out of graduate business school, uh, went to work for the advertising industry or in the advertising industry for uh, couple of um, big global ad agencies and uh, quickly discovered that um, there were other things to do besides that, uh, perhaps on the client side. And I had the good luck to be recruited by a very small company in Cupertino called at the time Apple Computer. And so I joined Apple uh, back in its fledgling days as their advertising manager and uh, worked at Apple in various roles, all within marketing. Uh, over the next seven years, both in Apple's domestic uh, or U.S. operation as well as their international operation. Um, and so uh, I left uh, Apple in the late 80s um, and joined uh, then the number two independent relational database company, a company called Ingress, where I was head of product marketing. And Ingress was sold. And um, I left Ingress not really knowing what to do, but I had had a good friend of mine who had previously been the creative director at Apple, who was now working at Landor Associates. Landor is one of the biggest you know, global branding firms in the world. And they brought me over and said, maybe you can get us more business in the high tech industry, which I attempted to do. And Jeff Moore, Jeffrey Moore, my original co-founder, rang me and said, hey, I wrote this book. Uh, Well, I had known that he'd written the book because I was one of his editors. So I remember looking at a manuscript for Crossing the Chasm as I was on a flight actually from London to Sydney. And this thing was in in a white binder three-hole binder. And I was looking through it and putting notes on it. And um, I said, well, you know, there's a book in here someplace. It's not this, but, but there, you know, this is not bad, Jeffrey. Um, And so Jeffrey 
uh, proceeded to clean it up because he's a brilliant writer. And he called me one day and he said, look, I just left Regis McKenna, which is uh, at the time was one of the kind of premier marketing PR agencies in, in Silicon Valley. And I've got a client and, and I've, I've put material around this crossing the chasm stuff where we can actually kind of teach teams to do it. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we should talk about that. And I said, sure, because I'm certainly hating what I'm doing. <laughs> so we did that and we talked about it over his kitchen table. And I said, well, you know, we can kind of do this until we have to get real jobs again, right? He said, yeah, that sounds good. And off we went. And the rest is history, I suppose. We still haven't gotten real jobs, but, you know, this has been all right. I said, same thing. So I joined SoftCap straight out of uni. Um, and I initially did it for, to get a year's worth of sales experience before going and getting a real job. And very quickly, it became a real job. And I was, it never felt like a real job, but it certainly was at the time. And 20 odd years later, and, 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 the, and the rest is history, I suppose. I wonder what became of that Apple company that you worked for in the <laughs> early days. You know, I don't know. I, I, they're still down there. Um, uh, you know, they're still down in Cupertino. Um, Maybe they'll make something quite, of themselves one day. Quite a, quite a, yeah, I, I, I think they actually, uh, they actually do. Uh, they actually turned out all right. Yeah, okay, that's good, <laughs> that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I should say I was very, very fortunate to, to work with Paul I think it was probably around 2002, Paul, um, when I was at Citrix. So I've known Paul a long time, but I also am incredibly grateful to him because we have to credit Paul for the fact that we are not called tribal wahoo, as we almost were and are called the Amplified Group because Paul and I met for dinner when we were first really conceiving the uh, the Amplified Group. And I mentioned to him that we'd come up with this term tribal because that's what we thought we were about. And we were thinking about adding Wahoo onto the end of it. And he said, Vic, you really can't do that. Go and listen to Christina Aguilera singing about this and then you'll realise you really can't use it. So Paul, I'm eternally grateful to you for the fact that we've now got a grown-up name and you steered us in the right direction as you have with with many other things so thank you again for for being here and sharing this with us happy to contribute <laughs> fantastic so paul do you do you want to tell us a little bit more about the chasm group and what they do sure. for people so the chasm group was originally formed as i said around these principles that jeff had written about in crossing the chasm and what crossing the chasm crossing the chasm was a was a um, was a bellwether book in high technology um, because it was the first real book business book that described fairly accurately how people adopt things uh, specifically uh, tech based things uh, how's that for a technical term that are uh, discontinuous or disruptive. That is, they're different from the status quo. And to, to be fair, the work, uh, what we later came to call the technology adoption life cycle, really came out of work that was done by a social scientist, Everett Rogers, here in the States back in the 40s. And he had really traced the adoption of, of uh, among other things, new farming techniques and built a, a bell-shaped curve, which was a, the distribution model for how- Every, Everything's a bell curve, right? Everything is a bell curve, yep, with standard deviations off of a mean. 
And he gave names to, to people, um, you know, early adopters, late adopters, laggards, et cetera, and we repurposed that. But we repurposed it with a difference. And that difference was this period that we call the chasm. And that is the kind of um, what we call an, a no man's land, if you will, between the adoption of what we call technology enthusiasts and visionaries, that is to say the very early adopters of a technology, and what we came to call pragmatists and conservatives, uh, not the political party, but um, to uh, describe early and late majority followed by laggards, which we don't really pay much attention to. And we postulated that all of the things that you needed to do in the early part of that market, technology enthusiasts and visionaries, would have to be for the most part, reversed when you went after mainstreamers. And that was very disconcerting to companies because they looked at this bell-shaped curve of, of adoption as continuous. That is to say, if I just win these first two groups, it will lead me into the promised land, obviously under the bell-shaped curve, there's a lot bigger numbers there. It will lead me into this promised land. And it didn't we would see time and again uh, innovations do very, very well at the outset and then stall out. And the phone at the time, the phone started ringing. And people were buying this book and they were calling and they said, that's just like me, or that's just like us. Or in my last company, we had the same thing happen. Oh my gosh, you guys have figured it out. And we said, well, we haven't figured it out. We've just described it, but we think we know how to address it. And so our practice began to develop around those ideas. Jeffrey, being a very prolific author, then followed it up with a book that was called Inside the Tornado, which came out in the 95-96 timeframe. And that uh, described a, a moment of hypergrowth, which we call the tornado. And followed by a couple of other books where we really started to now expand the IP beyond just this curve into other areas, other challenges that we felt technology companies faced. And uh, our, our practice broadened, our practice got larger, and it, in some cases, uh, began to resemble more a, I don't want to say traditional management consulting, because we, yeah, we did not want to be that, and we do not want to be that to this day. But all problems could not be described by this magic bell-shaped curve. And so, um, as, as kind of a co-founder, I said, you know, we're, we're in the business of solving people's problems, helping them solve their problems, building alignment around the, the, the solution to that problem. And so we're going to offer what we think is in service to that goal. Can I just interrupt for a second? And um, you've been just a little bit quiet on the fact that you actually also have brought out an authored book. <laughs> you didn't talk about it. Well, yeah. Okay. No modesty, so please. <laughs> so after Crossing the Chasm and Tornado came out, we were getting more and more questions, I guess, about, well, that's great. You've, you've described how to do this and you've, you've been somewhat prescriptive on what to do, but we would like a lot more detail. And so I wrote a book called The Chasm Companion, which was intended to be the field book 
for crossing the chasm inside the tornado, etc. And the Chasm Companion was a real how-to book. So it broke down these curves, it broke down the segments within these curves, and it started to address what we call the market development strategy framework, better known as the nine-point checklist. And in those elements, we postulated that nine things really were the things that determined effective market strategy, and you didn't really need to know a 10th thing. So Chasm Companion dives into each of those things and is in a sense a, a, a big toolbox. And I'm currently in the process, I've threatened it before, but I'm getting enough requests that um, I'm going to rewrite it. But there, there's so much great content in there, Paul, and, and certainly from from my perspective and how much I learned from you in those early days. We talk at, at the Amplified Group of what we do and turning it into muscle memory so that it's constantly used. And, you know, I, I go back to the book and it's great to see. It reinforces that I'm doing the right things because you helped me build that that muscle memory. Well, thanks. Uh, it's, it's, the book is too long. When I read it, I'm absolutely appalled by it. It's too long. And the concepts are right. The examples yeah. are obviously out of date. It's, it's never fun marking your own homework, though, is it? Yeah, no, it is. It really isn't. It's, <laughs> it's just, it's like, I wrote that phrase. I wrote that paragraph. Yeah. God, that's just awful. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely the same with that. I'm, with, you know, writing proposals and documents and all that sort of stuff, I would always get somebody else to proofread it. You know, and you can never proofread, proofread your own stuff. And I, and I can't stand, you know, listening back to these podcasts or watching myself play when I'm on stage with the band. Or, you know, I, I, I love it when I'm doing it, but I can't go back and listen to it or watch yes, myself or, or something well, that's, like that. That's what made Very weird. Jeffrey was such a uh, is such a prolific author because he always turned out his stuff to other people, notably yeah. me, to prove it. <laughs> Whereas you should really have a co-writing of, credit on. Yeah, um, I was the kind of writer who would write three pages and then go back and edit two. Yeah. So, Ricky, I can see why you uh, you wanted us to have Paul on the uh, on the podcast. That much is is clear. Um, do you want to give us a bit of context behind the topic? Well. It's really because um, last time Paul and I met, he was talking about a client that he was working with. And he was saying, you know, I've got the way we've been working together. I, you know, in terms of the process that we need to go through, we've done the things that we need to do with them. But it still comes down to the human interaction and how people are working together. And that just seemed to to fit really nicely with, with what we do and, and, and how we bring people along. And the fact that even, you know, even the messaging on the Cass and Grew's website now is it's, it's about alignment and it's about everybody pulling in the same direction. And that's such a critical piece to, to get right. So that's why I wanted to, to get Paul's perspective on it. Well, the world of high technology are now technology-based companies. The good news is that technology is very mainstream now. I mean, it, 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 we, we are no longer, no longer mystified by technology, no, no longer just to use the phrase blinded by science. I mean, there's still companies and still people that operate that way. But, you know, yeah. I mean, this, this thing, this iPhone that I'm holding up, um, you know, has more compute power in it 
than uh, the launch uh, vehicle that landed on the moon. It, you know, when you think about that, it's kind of, well, that's, that's pretty interesting, but nobody's really fascinated by that anymore. At the same time, the technology-based industries are high-risk, low-data industries. By that, I mean the, the answer is not going to be always in the data. There are going to be elements of risk that you're going to have to assume in order to get your product, your service to market and get it there quickly. Because this is a time, you know, it, uh, uh, technology companies are always fighting in a time-based uh, competition. Can, can my guys who write code, just to use an example, beat the guys down the street who write code? And uh, can my company beat the guys down the street because uh, they're less aligned. We can't really say that these are different companies because in this industry, as you well know, Vicki, you know, I worked for those guys down the street, right? <laughs> and so I didn't suddenly increase my IQ when I came over to the company that is now, you know, that, that, that is my new company. Rather, that new company is better aligned in what they're going to do how they're going to do it, why they're going to do it, and when they're going to do it than the company that I came from. And that, that's why I describe this as partially a time-based competition. Um, it, it, it's heretical to say, but I will say it, um, not being shy. Uh, nowadays, there is not more than, shall we say, 10 cents, 10p worth of difference between one technology and another in the same category. I mean, there just isn't. Uh, there used to be. There used to be significant differences, but now less so. And so how you take things to market is just as important as what you're taking things to market. And how you're organizing your troops inside the company is even more important than it was previously. That makes sense to me. I see, you know, if I look at some of the infrastructure stuff that we used to do, at, 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 well, still do at SoftCat, um, you know, in the early days of doing data center stuff, you'd buy a storage area network from one vendor because it had certain features and functionalities that would solve the problem. Like, so NetApp had snapshots and somebody else would have had replication and, and, and so on. And eventually that stuff became what I call table stakes. Yep. You know, everybody's got a flash layer. Everybody's got blazing fast IOPS. Everybody's got this, that, and the other. That's right. um, and So yeah, you're picking it on you know, commercial, what appeals to you, what your installed base is, you know, a lot more than just the tech. It's really interesting. I heard what, what you were saying about tech at the minute, but I heard Pat Gelsinger, um, the now erstwhile CEO of VMware, describe yeah. it as, as tech is breaking out of tech. You know, it's not just about um, the speeds and feeds and the stuff that it, it does. It's, it's tech going into the wider business and actually changing the world. And in, in that context, what do you see as the opportunity for tech at the minute? Well, I think just taking that and kind of parsing that sentence a little bit or parsing your question a, a bit, you have to kind of go back and to the statement that I made previously is that tech is now mainstream. One of the reasons that I was hired at Apple way back when is because I had learned marketing in consumer package goods. I was working for an ad agency, but the ad agencies that I was working on had clients that were consumer package goods clients. And you know that, that is where modern marketing started. 
I'm talking Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Colgate, Palmolive, et cetera, et cetera. And so I brought to Apple a discipline in marketing that simply wasn't there, me and several other people, that simply wasn't there in technology companies. Tech companies tend to run by, speaking of Pat Gelsinger, either engineers or salespeople. And marketing is always sort of, um, um, when it's done poorly and when it's organized poorly, it's, it's uh, marketing is the pool that runs between those two groups trying to adjudicate, you know, what each is doing. And that's not the way to, to operate a modern day technology company. So things have gotten a lot better, but there are still issues associated with bringing things to market in a world where technology is not the differentiator per se, but rather a whole list of things is what differentiates you and your company. That is what companies oftentimes still struggle with. And it's, re it's really interesting. There's two points I want to pick up on there. One, so, so Sam used to work at Softcat, and I'm, I think I mentioned to you, Paul, when we spoke last, we had Colin Brown on who took Softcat from being 100 million to just under 2 billion. And they were, they're an IT reseller for, for, for a simple term. And Colin says, our differentiation was our people. That, and, and I think that's a very simple example. But, but something else I just wanted to pick up on. Last time we spoke, you said, Vic, what's your problem statement? As in, what are we trying to do at the Amplified Group? And in listening to everything that came out of Mark Templeton's podcast about breaking the glass ceilings of growth and him talking about the inertia creeping in. Yeah. My internal statement is, um, is how do you stop that inertia creeping in? But actually what I've just heard there is, it's actually, it's about speed to market yeah. by getting everybody aligned. That's what yeah. we, that's what we, that's what we do. <laughs> that's our problem yeah. statement. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's the, the um, I mentioned about this low data, you know, high risk. We very much subscribe to the theory that we are never trying to get anything 100% right, right? I mean, not even close. I'll take 75% right because, first of all, there's inherent risk in this anyway. Number two, if I can get 75% right and get and launch something in a quarter when it takes my clients' competitors six to eight months to do yeah. the same thing, I'm way ahead of the game, yeah. right? And this is where, you know, big companies, the larger and larger and larger they get, the more adverse to risk they are. And that, that inertia creeps into big companies, just like rust will creep into your, your metal gate outside, you know, if you don't look after it. I mean, it just happens. And that inertia is absolutely a killer to an organization that ostensibly is trying to be, in quotation marks, agile, yeah. but can't because it, it, it's lost its sense of purpose or it's lost its sense of alignment around what its primary mission is. And, and Apple, back in the, in, the, um, in the late 80s, and Microsoft went through this as well, you can tell when a company is starting to go through this, the company is spending more time doing internal presentations oh, yeah. to each other than they are doing presentations to the marketplace or better yet, even listening to the marketplace. Yeah, 
95% of my job at VMware was internal and the 5% yes. and the highlight was working yeah. with the Partner Advisory Council, which is where I met Sam. That was that was like heaven to me at VMware. Yeah, and, and always had a metric for a company when we walked through the halls of the company. Remember that? Um, <laughs> we'll be there again. But uh, our, our simple metric was, Jeffrey came up with the metric of when I look in the cubicles and I see a lot of uh, the American cartoonist Dilbert, yeah, um, written by Scott Adams, who, yeah. who's, who, who was a tech guy, right? And, and, and speaks the truth. Yeah, and the more Dilbert cartoons that were posted up on the cubicles, the sicker the company was, or the more dysfunctional the company was. That was yeah. Jeff's metric. My metric was a little different. I would walk into a company and the more posters I saw that had come out of the HR department around values, around alignment, around this, that, and the other thing, the more posters I saw on the wall, the more dysfunctional that company was. So what should big companies, big tech companies, particularly those in that, that hyper-growth phase, be thinking about? Well, <laughs> it... Two different ideas there, Sam. If you're in hyper-growth phase, likely you're not big. <laughs> you're well, trying to yeah, get big. Yeah, good point. You're, you're yeah. on your way to big, or at least you hope so. You're, 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 you're trying to get big, right? So the challenges that we see to companies that are in hyper uh, or trying to meet these next big goals, you know, I'm a, I'm a $50 million company trying to get to a $200 million company. I'm a $200 million company trying to get to a $500 million company, et cetera. Part of these challenges are, can we adapt our processes? Can we adapt how we go to market in such a way that we are not getting trapped by inertia? Uh, we call that, by the way, core and context. Can we keep repurposing our focus around core? And I'll describe what I mean by that in a minute. And keep extracting context away from our organization. And let me describe core and context in, in, in a very simple way. Core is, are those sorts of activities that when you do them well, they make a difference. They advance your valuation. They advance your share price. Um, they, they, they advance your cause. And when you do them poorly, they retard that cause. Context are those sets of activities and processes that you do that when you do them well, you maintain a status quo of sorts. But when you do them poorly, you diminish that status quo. And the way that I used to describe this to people, uh, and in fact still do, when my son, was, I don't know, 12 years old or so, going to his bedroom, you know, it looks like a, a hurricane has gone has gone through it. Clean up this room, okay? Sam and, yeah. and I have both got 12-year-olds, Paul, so yes, we, exactly. we, we get that. Yeah. I feel so your pain. I, you, know, <laughs> you need to get your room clean, okay? Sort it out. Well, why, Dad? It's just, it, it's my room. I'll just shut the door. Like, yeah, but it's my house, okay? And I, I, I know what's going on here. And, and, you know, this is disorganized rooms or decides of signs of disorganized minds, which, of course, a 12-year-old isn't really going to pick up on. I mean, well, what do I get for it? And the answer is nothing. Okay? You don't get anything for it. You get to continue to live here. We will reward you when you bring A's home on your report card. Okay? That's core. 
keeping your room clean is context. And young companies um, have the, the uh, advantage of being mostly all core. Now, by the way, context things are things that need to be done. Those are hygiene factors that need to be done, but they don't need to be done better than whatever the hygiene standard is, whereas core does. And over time, what happens to companies, what happens to organizations is that their core context ratios start to even out and approach one. And that's a problem. And when companies start to grow like that, or when we, they, they start to get the, uh, in that situation, they've lost, again, this notion of what is my organizing purpose? Why do I have so much stuff devoted to context and my core is now suffering and I now can't grow? So back to your question, hyperscale companies keep their eye on that core context idea. Big companies oftentimes have to go through a period where they shed context. And um, you know, the, 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 um, we're a company, um, the Chasm Group is a company that focuses on core, right? We wanna build up the numerator right, the growth side, and we'll let the denominator kind of take care of itself. I would contrast that with a lot of the big management consultancies who are, I would argue, in some ways are context driven. We will, yeah. we will come in and get rid of all of your context. We can I can really see that. Yeah, we can identify context and we'll get rid of it and we'll get rid of it, you know, quite smartly. That makes loads like of that. sense. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So you've been doing this for 20 years. What's changed? Longer than that. <laughs> okay, 20, 20 plus years. Yeah. I was being kind. Yeah, we'll just, we'll, let's just leave it at that, Sam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think what's changed, again, back to what I referenced previously, the industry is a lot more mature now, the, the technology industry. Now, and it's, it's never been more, more vibrant. Quite amazing, really. I just, I just can't see any, any, uh, uh, any flattening out of the tech industry from now through the rest of my lifetime. I've done a tremendous amount of work in biotech back in the 90s, gene sequencing and, and what have you. I've worked for virtually every biotech company, certainly in, in, in California and some in Boston. And uh, we see the advantages of those, the, 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 the benefits of that technology come to fruition 15 years after it's invented. And that is the rapid sequencing of the coronavirus and the ability to create vaccines in under a year that have a you know, 90 plus efficacy. That's just staggering. We are now in the world of AI and ML, artificial intelligence, machine language that will be attached to everything. I still don't want it in my refrigerator, but you know, Call me a Luddite. We are in we are in version two of a 10-year profound existential change called digital transformation. And the first round, we, we believe that this is a 20-year cycle at least. Uh, we have now completed 10 years of it, and the next 10 years are going to be even more profound and probably harder to do because we start to get into marginal rates of return to some of those activities. So that's what's changed. 
The, what, what hasn't changed, unfortunately, is that from a market development, market strategy, in some senses, corporate strategy, kind of where I live, uh, we still see our share of really bad ideas. Bad ideas in the sense that I don't understand what you're trying to say here. I don't understand what, you know, there, there's a million companies in your category. Why are you different? Well, because we have fenestrated stats with this, this, and this, you know, all of this tech babble. And it's like, so, you know, what is your why? I still have difficulty getting clients to tell me what it is, what it does, what it means, and why yeah. someone should care and put that on one sheet of paper. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You see, uh, yeah, I've got a, a deck to look at, a, you know, a company that's looking for, looking for investors at the minute. And if you drill into it, and, you know, I, I can kind of get my head around some of this technobabble stuff. If you drill into it, it's actually not a bad idea. But the way in which they presented it, in yeah. my opinion, is just dreadful. Yes. You know, I can only just deduce yeah. what it is that they're trying to do. And I'm yeah. in that world. You know, if you uh, put that in, like, somebody, somebody, in front of somebody who, you know, hadn't been immersed in the world of tech for the 25 years of their life and, and isn't a geek like me. These, these the conversations that I have with leadership teams because I get yeah. presented with these sorts of things. And I, it's like, so what is it exactly that you're doing here? And I said, by the way, I'm asking that in an authentic way because I can't figure this out. Yeah. I see these things all the time and have for long periods of time. What is the average, you know, what is the person outside who, you know, is going along just fine in life, by the way, before you came along? Uh, what are they to think of this? Yeah. The average Joe on the street or whatever the phrase yeah. is. Yeah. And so, so you know, you, you, you see what I call Gen 2, particularly in software, what I call Generation 2 companies that are particularly adept at simplifying value propositions so that yeah. people can understand them. Slack, perfect example, right? Is Slack a game changer? I don't think so, right? I mean, I, I virtually every client that I go into uses Slack. They always try to put me on it. And it's like, I don't want to be disturbed. Thank you very much. I'm not, I don't <laughs> need to be in every conversation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what was the premise behind Slack? Email sucks. Yeah. So why not just have a running conversation? Okay, fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, Shopify, uh, companies like this, Twilio, companies like this have just really extraordinarily simple. What they do is quite complicated in a way, but yeah. they have yeah. very simple ways of explaining themselves. And we still in the tech industry, you know, we look in a mirror and think we're looking through a window. Yeah. And yeah. that just doesn't um, uh, it, 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 it doesn't end well when people can't get out of that. Okay. I've, al I've always said, to me, it seems to be the mark of high intelligence. If you can explain a complicated and particularly technological concept to somebody who doesn't have that background in simple terms, crisply and concisely. And, you know, I think the same is true for, from a company standpoint. You get a win if you can get your message over quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Reductionism is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Just before we started, I had a sales pitch email into me. And it doesn't actually say what it is that we're, he's selling in the, in the email. You know, I'm going to have to dig into a PDF and have a look at it and try and work out what it is that he's pitching to me. 
And, you know, can I be bothered? Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. So, yeah, companies have so many, so many features and benefits, and we as individuals yeah, yeah. have so little time and interest in finding what those things Widgets are. Widgets and gadgets and, yeah, whiz, whiz bangs, whiz bangs, yeah. as we used to call it. The IT security in, industry is terrible for whiz bangs. You know, we've invented a new thing, a, a new a new whiz bang, courtesy Adam Luca, chief technologist for security at Softcat. Uh, he coined that expression where they, that, you know, they invent a new widget that solves a problem that nobody knew that they needed before. And off you, off you go and build a half a billion dollar company off it. Well, and, and, and that's one of the things that is, that is um, you ask what's changing in the industry, this, what we call this digital transformation, you know, 2.0, what we have done, particularly in the IT industry is that um, for years, decades, we sold people layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of stuff. And all of this was predicated on having it, you know, I've got it in my, you know, my, my IT room and I've got, you know, all the way down from semiconductors all the way up through, you know, little tiny applications that we're using on our PC. And these are just layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of stuff. And people don't want more layers. What they're doing now is they're shedding those layers. And they're saying, literally, going back to the idea that was first postulated, I will get, I, I will provision information technology by plugging something into the wall or pulling it down out of the air. And that's what I want. I'm going to let other people take care of all of the, as you've mentioned, Sam, all of the whiz banks. And I will subscribe to that service. And of course, that's called AWS and Azure and Google Cloud and what have you. And that is what people want. They don't want all of these other things. They want to detach from this. And well, they should. Yeah, makes sense. So pace of change is faster than ever. How do organizations keep agility in these crazy times? Well, I think it comes back to, to what, what, at least for me, and I'm, I'm hardly an organizational expert, but, um, but my experience has been that when people are really built around a common purpose when they understand that common purpose, when they are allowed to work to that common purpose and are able to align with their colleagues, not in an inauthentic way or not in a way that is like, okay, it's alignment time. We have to go have an alignment offsite. Um, and I, you know, Vicki, I'm sure you've seen this all the time. You know, we have to go, we have to go align now because uh, we're unaligned. So, so the idea of aligning around purpose, uh, there's lots of different ways of getting there, but aligning around purpose, cause, philosophy as to why we're in service to something or why we're in service to others. Those are the meta aligning principles that I see that really make the difference between organizations that know what they're doing, know what they're about, and confident in their pursuit of that, and organizations that are still kind of, you know, shaking their heads back and forth, um, uh, almost almost reacted to a fault, or are artificially, well, we can't do anything because we're not aligned. I mean, I, I, I will, you know, I've heard that from several big companies yeah. who stress that we can't really make progress on this because we're not aligned. 
Yeah. yeah. And so alignment is looked at as a an event. Yeah. Rather than as a continuous process. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I've been. It's just made me think. I've been working with a, a leadership team, and the alignment piece has come down to. So there's a new MD, and last year they had 26 priorities. <laughs> And they del- they presented them to the organisation. And when I did the company wide survey to see, they people were I, I likened it to they wanted to be um, empowered. I likened it to they were like on a dog lead. You know those dog leads that stretch. Yeah, that's right. And then and then they'd get to a point where it would choke them back. Yes. Because yeah. they'd all got these competing priorities. And actually, my day has been made today because I've been working with this leadership team, and they have reduced their number of priorities down to four and they presented them and what we needed to do from an alignment perspective is we needed to get the leadership team so whether it was about culture or whether it was about building an omni-channel I needed the person that was talking about omni-channel to be able to talk about culture in the same way so they're all talking the same language and I, I, I heard from somebody today that had been on the receiving end of this and the feedback has just been we know what's expected of us this year and they haven't got competing priorities yeah, just music to my ears. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I one of my one of my partners is extraordinarily good at this. Uh, is you know putting a leadership team in a room um, and building building a strategy with more of a facilitated strategy session, but he doesn't let them out of the room unless they all agree on what they're going to do. Yeah, and it, in 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 some ways he's he's like the you know the headmaster of the school. Yeah. And he, he he does it in a in a very very, um, I should say, gentle yet yes. effective way yeah, yeah. of taking yeah. you know ostensibly very headstrong leadership members of a leadership team and getting them to say okay yeah we'll we'll do this yeah. the other the other the other side of it that we see is you know this alignment we were working with a client where we we made them trace. From the time an order comes in, what are all the steps that happen before their customer actually gets use, not just receives the product, but gets use out of it? And put this up on a whiteboard and CEO looks at that and says, oh, my God. We have created a monster. Yeah. You know, all because we, you know, Breaks Not that there was something here, wrong here, with those steps, but every organization had a touch point in this and they all had to kind of do their stuff. And that kind of comes back to this notion of there was a tremendous amount of context in that mm-hmm. process that didn't add any value. Yeah, that's a brilliant example. You know, I've just I've just finished reading a book by General Stanley McChrystal about team of teams. And he talks about how you get the different teams to work together. And he was saying about you can have, you know, the Navy SEALs can be completely optimized in what they're doing, but then they weren't working with the intelligence agency and how they got them to to interact and understand and build the trust between the teams. So it's a fascinating area. As we come towards the end in that context, it's probably worth asking, Paul, what your three key takeaways are, or, or your key takeaways at least, even if you don't need, feel you need to give us a full three on how to keep organizations aligned? 
Well, I think, again, always, always coming back to saying, what, what is the purpose of what we're doing? What is the next set of things that we need to do in order to hit three-month, six-month, nine-month, 12-month milestones? Those can be soft, they can be hard, but they have to be realizable and they have to be tangible to somebody. It's not enough to say, well, we need to make the quarter next quarter. Of course you do. That's why you're being paid, right? <laughs> well, we need, to, we, we, you know, we need to get this product out. That's why you're being paid, okay? I mean, it, you know, if, you, if you can't get the product out, then something's wrong you know, in, in, in the process. And you need to go back and look at that. But absent those things, you know, that's not enough to align around what is our organizing philosophy for the company? What are we attempting to do? Why is that important to do? Why is that important to our customers? Why will they get value out of doing that? And therefore, why is it important that we prosecute it in this particular way? And, you know, those are just questions to be raised, just questions to be asked. And in, in back into, you know, just kind of put a wrap to this. When you shoot a 30-second, 45-second, 60-second commercial, that is being shot to a strategy, which has then been storyboarded into a series of vignettes, a script, camera angles, what actors are going to say, how everything looks. And when, when before any of that happens, you will see a variety of different ways to, in a sense, prosecute a particular strategy. And what you're taught is to ask yourself, is this activity on strategy? Okay, is this, is, is what we're doing even down to a particular scene, is that on strategy, right? And what's the strategy? Well, I'm, I'm old school. The strategy is to sell something, okay? That's the function of advertising, right? And uh, if you don't believe me, just read any of David Ogilvy's books, right? <laughs> Amen to that. Yeah, and so, so you know, people, people, you know, the, the Super Bowl just ran in, in, the, in the States and, and, you know, part of it is this, this, this you know sort of orgy of commercials, and what people spend on these things is unbelievable. And of course, people that a lot of my friends in the still in the ad industry, it's like that's crap, that's awful, that's stupid, that's derivative. <laughs> oh, gee, celebrities and sports stars saying funny things. Nobody ever thought of that before, <laughs> right? Most of it is crap because there's no strategy behind it. Right. And that's just, you know, that's just kind of taking life and putting it into a 30-second vignette. But somehow we lose that a lot of times in the tech industry. And, it, 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 you know, there, there's not a reason why we should do that. We just don't think about it. It's joining it all up together, isn't it? Yeah. I think that makes sense. So, Vic, in the absence of our dearly beloved Shah. <laughs> He's uh, just sent me a message, actually, and she says, hi, Paul. Hello. <laughs> cool. Well, there you go. She's almost still on the podcast. Then, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> popping up, yeah. popping up in the middle of it. Um, yeah, yeah. You better take over and uh, talk to, talk us through I, hero time. I'm not sure I can do it quite as well as Shah, but um, we have hero time, Paul, because our mm. little emblem at, at the Amplified Group 
is a stick man and his name is Hero. And it's not about us being the heroes. It's about mm. making our clients into heroes. So mm. we like to have this little bit at the end of the podcast just to to get an idea from our guests of who their hero is. And we've had such a range from our dog walker to Gandhi to, to I don't believe in heroes. So it's a it's a wide open question to you, but we're curious. I, I don't know. know that I have a single one, Vic. I, I, I look no. at I, I look at a lot of people that I think are extraordinary in what they do. Uh, I'll, I'll be very honest, being being very temporal, at least in this country. If Dr. Anthony Fauci is not awarded a Congressional Medal of Honor at the end of this past year, there is yeah. no justice in this world. Yeah. Is that an American knighthood? Is that in a sense, an, yes. An American? Yes. Yeah. But I mean, if, if, the, if the people, um, uh, again, you look, at, you look at these people are creating an extraordinary difference in the world. You look at the scientists at Sanger Center uh, in Britain, uh, in Cambridge, you know, what's going on at the CDC right now in the States, uh, Center for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health. But Tony Fauci in particular, the man is 80 years old. He looks younger than I am. And he is on TV every night. And he is just crackerjack smart. And he's my man on the pedestal right now. Well, great example. A, Thank you. That sounds legitimate. And, yeah. and I know Sam will wrap us up in a minute, but I just want to say thank you so much for, for spending the time with us today and, and sharing your pearls of wisdom because it, it's just such a, an honour and a privilege to to have you on the podcast Paul. My pleasure Vic anytime. Absolutely yeah really enjoyed that it's really good to get that that level of insight as always really appreciate you uh, joining us and that was fantastic so it just remains for me to say thank you to our listeners for joining us on Get Amplified from the Amplified group your comments and of course your subscriptions gratefully received as always and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 